If you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, um, and go ahead and stand with me um, for the reading of God's Word. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arrive in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken, and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his prosperity, nor according to the authority of which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king in the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority." After some years they shall come and make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt... Their gods with the metal images and the precious silvers, vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through. And again, carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall arise again, raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among those people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes again against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give his daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage." Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence, and indeed he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdoms by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from that time an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, and scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up in his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. For as the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet at the time appointed." 
And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work in his will and return to his own land. And at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. And shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. For some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor a god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him shall be loaded with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the lands for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush him with a whirlwind, and with chariots and horses and many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these will be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, in the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt to the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with the great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, your word tells us in 1 Corinthians that we can't understand your word unless the Holy Spirit illuminates it and makes it plain to us. Lord, I pray that you would do again this morning what you do for so many of us all throughout the week. Would you illuminate your word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you help us to see what this passage has to say for us today here in this place? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Man, what a strange passage. Am I right? If you haven't read it ahead of time, then you may have, you know, after a little bit, found yourself standing and your head starting to spin a little bit as you try to keep up. I told some of the men at Bible study this week, when I read this passage sitting at my desk on Monday, I immediately just started praying and thought, well, Lord, I have no idea what that means. I couldn't even follow it. King of the North, King of the South, what is going on here? You better help me because Sunday's coming and uh, Monday doesn't look so great right now. And what, there's a couple reasons this is hard to follow. The first reason it's hard to follow is there's, it's not always clear who the kings are, right? There's a king in the north and the king in the south, and it's kind of ping-ponging between them as the, they're fighting or they're not fighting or are they fighting somebody else. I don't know. 
And the second reason it's hard, and the second reason is it's prophecy, right? This is the second part of the vision that Daniel has had, that the angel has given to him, that we talked about last week in chapter 10. And so kind of the rest of the book is still, is really one section, and it's all about this vision. And prophecy is always slightly harder to understand, a little harder to understand than the Gospels or Paul's letters. One of the reasons this is also difficult is because God's name is never mentioned explicitly. It doesn't even seem like God's people are mentioned very often. At first glance, it looks like God is almost completely absent from the text. For all these reasons and others, this has led some commentators I read this week to even call this passage unpreachable, which you might agree with them in about 30 minutes, but you can let me know. But I think that this passage has something for us today. Right, all of God's word is inspired, and it's all useful, and it's all meant for our understanding. Yes, some passages are harder to understand than others. But I think our duty as believers is when we come to passages that are more difficult or hard, our solution shouldn't just be to turn the page or run to the Psalms. It should be to lean in, to do some hard work and to try to figure out, okay, this is hard, but why and what is in here? Lord, you wrote this in a certain way, so there must be something here for us this morning. Ultimately, what this whole passage is about, I think, is that God is in control. It is ultimately a reminder of how our God is the God of time, and He is in control from the past, the future, and even now. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to try and, I'm going to try and unpack this and help you understand it. So your, your first point, if you're keeping notes in your blank or in your bulletins, is that God was in control in the past. God was in control in the past. The first 35 verses of this chapter, and it's a long chapter, but it seems like these first 35 verses are all about events prophesied to Daniel ahead of time, but that from our perspective are ancient history. They've long been fulfilled and answered. And now this can seem kind of boring to us a little bit, right? If you don't like history, some of you might love history. Some of you might not enjoy it as much, and history can be boring. But what's actually happening here, this is miraculous because this is not history for Daniel. He is being prophesied about events that are going to happen hundreds of years in his future. And he's being told how they will happen in explicit detail. It's not vague. It is precise. But that's a challenge this morning. Okay, well, how do, how do we do that? How am I supposed to preach that or walk through it? Because I don't want this morning to just turn into a history lesson. Okay, I don't want to just walk through these first 35 verses and show you explicitly how every single thing is fulfilled by this person and that person. Because as soon as I start mentioning some of these names or dates, some of you, your eyes are going to roll back in your head and you're going to fall asleep fairly quickly. But I also don't think that's exactly the, the point of this. Right? If, if you want that, come back Wednesday. That's what we're going to do on Wednesday. I'm going to walk through this and show you how all these things are fulfilled out. Or you can get my notes. Um, but I am going to give you a couple examples of, of how this is. So you don't just have to take my word for it. And we can see what this is. But as we do this, you need to remember and have this in your mind. This is all about and a reminder that God was in control in the past. None of these things just happened. They happened because God predicted them, God allowed them, and God knew that they would come to be. And so what this should remind us as well is everything that has happened just in history in general, not just the history mentioned in these verses, has happened because God knew it would happen and God allowed it to happen. It never surprised him. It never worried him. It never made him anxious. So this is not a history lesson. This is a reminder that our God is in control. 
And so now let's now see how he does this. So the, the first couple of verses, it starts off straightforward. So some of you might have started off strong if you've been with us as we've gone through Daniel because they sound familiar in verse 2. God, God tells him, you know, now I will show you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia and the first, fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So Daniel's being warned that after Darius and Cyrus, there's going to be four more kings that are going to come in this Persian empire. And the fourth king is Xerxes. You can read about him in the book of Esther. And he's a king that we probably all well know. And this king, the fourth one, or Xerxes in verse 3, decides when he becomes strong through his riches, he shall stir up the kingdom against Greece. And we know this is exactly what happened. Xerxes did attack Greece in some rather famous battles that some of you may even know, like the battle at Thermopylae with the Spartans. And then several kings later, we have, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with a great dominance and do as he wills. So Xerxes attacked Greece and eventually failed, and now a ruler from Greece comes. And it seems to be Alexander the Great. He rules the whole world with great dominion, does whatever he wants, but then his kingdom is broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. Because Alexander died tragically, and his kingdom was split, not according to his prosperity or his authority. He didn't get to pick. His generals cut up the empire into pieces. And then we transition after that in five to now we get the kings of the south and kings of the north. And this is where you might have started getting lost. That's where I got lost on Monday at least. But it's helpful to, to know and understand these directions too. They're according to Israel. Because this is from Israel and God's people's perspective. And so the kings of the north and the king of the south, these are two different kingdoms. And these are two kingdoms that were broke off from um, Alexander's empire. The king of the north, it's the, the Seleucid Empire which was lots of Greece and Persia, and it was north of Israel. And then the, the Ptolemy Empire was located largely in Egypt and Africa, which is why Egypt pops up repeatedly. It's kind of normally referred to as Egypt. And so these two kings, these north and south, take up a big chunk of these next 35 verses. And about 13 out of the 16 kings between these two kingdoms you can find here. You can just walk through and read their history and have Daniel 11 next to you, and you can find it for yourself. I'm not going to do that with you again. We'll save that for Wednesday. Um, but there's actually six wars that happen between these kings that we read in these verses. They're going to refer to as the six Syrian wars, if you want to study that later. But I'm going to look at one example to show you, um, at least in these first 35 verses, how this happens. So look at 17. So the king, up to this point, the king of the north and south, they're fighting, going back and forth and have peace and they don't have peace and they're fighting. Now again they come in 17, and he shall come to his face, come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He shall bring the terms of agreement and perform them. And he shall give his daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So the kings have been fighting here and they're trying to make peace. And the king of the north is coming and giving his daughter, okay, the daughter of women, in a political marriage. But he's not doing it, you know, just to have a nice alliance so they can get along and both be happy. He's doing it to destroy the kingdom. He's trying to take it over is the goal. And so this happened. Antiochus III was the king of the north and he was fighting against the Ptolemaic Empire of the Egyptians and he made peace. He sent his daughter to marry Ptolemy V, who was the king at this point, And he hoped that this would give him control because that king was very young. And his daughter was very young. So you assume, you know, you send your daughter over there. She's going to listen to you. And she's going to help you. And his daughter was named Cleopatra I. Her name might sound familiar. Now because she actually, she loved her husband. And she loved her new people. She did not help her father whatsoever. In fact, even when her husband died, and he died tragically young, 
And then her young son, who's six, was the king, and she got to be the regent and control over everything. You know, her dad really hoped at this point, perfect, now I'm going to just get to run both of these empires. But she didn't. She resisted him. And she was such a great queen for the king in the south or for the Ptolemaic Empire that her queens continued to be named Cleopatra one after another after another until the most famous Cleopatra that you've heard of. But it all started here because this woman that the king of the north gave to the south, hoping would turn to his advantage, did not at all. Let me show you another place in, in verse 30. So, verses, so the first 20 verses, first 35 are all in the past. The first 20 verses are really kind of largely about these wars between these two kingdoms. Verses 21 through 35 are largely about Antiochus IV or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've talked about him a little bit because he was someone who was a forerunner of the Antichrist. He was someone who, who fulfills at least part some of the little horns that have been mentioned previously in Daniel, in Daniel 8, and Daniel 7, maybe not completely, maybe a little bit. But so he's someone that we've talked about repeatedly. But this verses, really 21 to 35, are kind of all about him and his rule and what he would do, or for us, what he did do. Verse 30, let's look at this one, because at least this is the one I think is most interesting. It tells us, Daniel is prophesying, that for ships from Kittim are going to come against him, and he's going to be afraid and withdraw. And he'll turn back and then be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. And he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And this happened. So Antiochus IV was going, and he was going down to fight the kings in the south and destroy them and destroy Egypt. But some ships from Kittim from Rome showed up to stop him. And they came and they confronted him and they actually embarrassed him in front of his whole army. They were trying to tell him, look, Rome wants you to turn around and not attack Egypt or you're going to go to war with us. And he tried to stall and say, okay, well, let, let me think about it. And, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you with my answer, hoping that he could, you know, take them out quickly. And the guy from Rome drew a circle around Antiochus and said, no, you got to tell me because if you step out of this circle before turning your armies around, then you're going to be at war with Rome in front of his whole army. So he eventually backed off and said, sure, sure, I'll back up, and turned around and was super embarrassed and enraged. And then he turned and he went back and he marched on Jerusalem. And he sacked it and he began a great persecution against the people of God's covenant. Who at that point, why did this happen? It happened because they had forsaken the holy covenant and because of their disobedience, they were being punished by God. So there's a couple examples. Maybe I lost some of you already who don't like history, but that's what all these verses are about. So I don't know any other way to explain it to you than that. But we have to remember that this was not history to Daniel. This was in his future. This is like if I told you about kings and exact things of what were going to happen three, four hundred years from now. And then it happened just like that. He was only getting glimpses of what was to come, but it came true exactly how God said so the question is, why, why is this here? Is it just here so we can go and read about Antiochus and the Ptolemaic or Seleucid kingdoms and learn how to say new words? No, it's there for us today so we can know that God is in control. God is in control. All of that. God controls the rise and the falls of empires. He controls every king that ever gets put on the throne, no matter how they think that they got there. He controls every election, no matter how much you think your vote carried or didn't or someone else has messed it all up. Throughout this book, right, we've talked about how a lot of these prophetic, prophetic visions of Daniel are really complicated, and this one still is too. Some of them we've even said, hey, there's a bunch of different ways people understand it, and I've punted and not always told you what I think because it's confusing. Maybe I don't even know all I think. Well, godly men and women, right, they've disagreed on how to interpret a bunch of these chapters, but here's the remarkable thing. These th first 35 verses 
in this chapter are almost, but almost, they're universally understood the same way for everybody. I'm not just giving you my opinion here. Almost everyone says, yep, these were all fulfilled in history by Antiochus and Tolik and Cleopatra and all these other names I'm not going to hit you with today. In fact, they're, they're so accurate that they talk about those 13 out of 16 kings that some scholars think it's not even just, well, they're about that. It's, well, Daniel obviously couldn't have written this because it's too accurate. This had to have been written by somebody hundreds of years later because otherwise that would be miraculous if somebody predicted all of these things because these are definitely already fulfilled. It's too exact. God couldn't have done it. So that tells us as Daniel 11, this is partially a testimony too of God's faithfulness. Okay, his name might not be mentioned on here, and it might not pop up and, and make you wonder, but his fingerprints are all over the place. There's, none of this happened just because God guessed correctly. Not just because God is really smart or can see into the future. It happened because God is in control. God was in control of the past. So this means for us, as we can read history, we can know it's not just a series of random events. It's not just a series of things that we don't always understand, that we might not. We can read it and know that our God was in control at every step of the way. And so the natural question might be, okay, well, God predicted stuff accurately in the past. That's nice. Well, what about, what about today? What about the future? Well, our second blank or our second point is a reminder, well, our God will be in control in the future. He was in control of the past, and we can assume that's going to continue forever. That's what we believe as Christians. We don't have to wonder about it. It's a certainty. Just as Daniel didn't have to worry about the future of his nation or the people of God, we don't have to worry about the kingdom of God. We don't have to worry about the church, what will or won't happen. Sometimes we can get too myopic of a view, right? We can worry about our own church our own people, we can worry about the church in, in our state or the church in our nation and, and see things and wonder and their numbers and go down and wonder, oh, I just, I don't know. I'm anxious about what the future might be. Well, we don't have to worry about what the future of the kingdom of God will be because God is in control. Now, starting at 36, at the end of 35 and 36, there's a bit of a shift so we've been talking about kings and people that fit descriptions, and everyone kind of agrees there largely, but now this is where the disagreement comes out once we get here. This is where some, those who say, well, Daniel couldn't have writ it, written it before, they say, well, he couldn't have written it either because 36 to the end, this seems like it hasn't been fulfilled yet, or maybe he just guessed and got it wrong. So I don't think that's true. I think what we're waiting here is we're waiting for this to be fulfilled in the future, especially the end of 35 tells us, you know, we're, we're waiting until the end, time of the end, which still awaits the appointed time. So it seems to be about the end or the last days. And I think the king mentioned here in 36 is a different king. I think this king is the Antichrist that we are still awaiting for in the future. So I'm going to walk through these verses a little bit more, but we need to keep in mind the, the larger context, right? This is all about God ultimately is the one in control of this. So is God predicting the future. This is God telling us exactly what the Antichrist will be like and what he will do. And what this means is you don't have to be afraid about it because God's already telling you. God's not saying, I don't know, he's going to show up. It's going to be bad and scary. I can't help you. He's saying, no, here's what he's going to do. Here's how he's going to do it. So we can relax and remember that even when the Antichrist arises, our God is in complete and total control. He's not losing control at the end of the world when Satan kicks him off the throne and then they have to wrestle back for it. No, he's in control the entire time. And so 36, it mentions the king shall do as he wills. Now this king, again, it appears to be different than the king in the north or the king in the south. It's just its own king. 
And this king does as he wills. He exalts himself and he magnifies himself against every god. And he speaks astonishing things against the god of God. So he's disconnected. And he rejects every single god of the earth, including the one and only true god, Yahweh, that we worship. And he pays no attention to the gods of his fathers. So th this phrase, if you've heard some say, well, the Antichrist is going to be Jewish. Why would they say that? Well, it comes from this verse right here where it just says he's not paying attention to the gods of his fathers. So that could be true. He could be Jewish. But it really what it does tell us definitively is that whoever the gods of his fathers are, whoever the gods that the Antichrist parents worshipped, he won't worship them. He's just going to worship himself. 37, or to the one beloved by women, he shall not pay attention to any god. He shall magnify himself above all. The phrase, the one beloved by women, some think yeah, maybe that means he's single or he's not married. Or it could be referencing a God who's worshipped by women or the gods of his mothers. Either way, the end of it comes down to he only magnifies himself. He doesn't care about anybody else or any other gods. But he doesn't just worship himself only in 38. He shall honor the gods of fortresses instead of these. The gods whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. It's kind of a strange phrase. Well, what does that mean? You're saying he's not worshiping any gods, but he is worshiping gods. Well, I think the God of fortresses, this seems to be he's honoring military might and power. That's his idol. The God of massive fortresses that no one can take and armies and navies, believing these things are the most important in life. It'll spend all of his money. That's the, the honoring them with gold and silver. He's going to spend all of it on building the biggest military that he can imagine or that he can afford. And then he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of his foreign god. That if that's right, if I'm right there, that the foreign god's his military might, then that's what's helping him deal with stronger fortresses and conquering the world. Which shows us, again, the Antichrist is being allowed by God to destroy those who oppose him. And those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. And he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the lands for a price. In verse 39. It's going to be like every other tyrant and emperor who's ever been. That, hey, bend the knee and bow and submit to me. And y'all get to put you in charge of stuff. And I'll buy you that way. But oppose me and I'm going to kill you. So that's what he seems to do here. But some appear to resist at the end, right? So at 40, at the time of the end, which is that again, that phrase is why I think this is about the Antichrist in the end. The king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush him like a wind, or and the king of the north shall rush him like a whirlwind with chariots and horses and many ships. So this seems to me at least like the king of the north and the, the south are both trying to oppose the Antichrist with all of their might. So then that makes us wonder, well, who is that? And we start to try to, you know, pick and identify who these are. And that identity always changes depending on who you're talking to at any point in history, whoever the big bad is that they're scared of. And this is where... You know, some too, some believe, you know, they think that the king of the north here isn't just attacking the Antichrist, but it's actually the Antichrist. I, I don't think that's exactly what's happening, but you can study it yourself and figure it out. And this too, this is the primary place where people will point to Russia and say, oh, this is the king of the north. Or you've heard people the past couple months start to say things like, oh, look, their, their invasion of, you know, Ukraine is fulfilling prophecy. Putin's the Antichrist. If you've been hearing that, it's largely from these verses here where it's just an unidentified king of the north. So study the scriptures yourself to see if that's true. I don't think so. I'll wait to see when God um, kind of confirms that. Um, but two, it's good to remember these are just anybody who's north of Israel could fit. 
Anybody who's south of Israel could fit that. Well, Israel's kind of in the middle, right? So that kind of, uh, I don't know, that's almost the whole world. You can figure that out. That's a lot to narrow down. So, um, But it'll be obvious when it happens, just like the rest of it is. But so the Antichrist, he responds by crushing everything. And then 44, and here's the wild thing that happens. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he goes out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. This, again, is why I think he's different than the king of the north. So he goes out to destroy even more. But this next verse, the very last verse in 45, it's the most important thing you need to know about the Antichrist. Okay, if you've grown up in church or you're curious or maybe you've even studied this figure um, at length on your own, um, or really whether you have or not your, your opinion on it, you know, here's the only opinion you really need to have in 45. And he shall pitch... His palatial tents between the sea and glorious holy mountains. So he's come, and yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Sets himself up near Zion at some point, and what happens? Well, he just comes to his end. It's over. It's a pretty unceremonious end for this figure. The most terrifying figure that most Christians can imagine simply dies written out of the story and there's a new chapter and we move on. It serves as a reminder to us, right, that our God is in control. Look, by all means, study the Antichrist. I don't want this to be a sermon. That, I mean, it's got to deal with him because that's what our passage is this morning, so that's what we're doing. Um, by all means, study it. Read all the passages in the Bible that you can find. Go read good theology, listen to good sermons. But man, don't look so much at the Antichrist that you forget Christ. The God that we're supposed to be here to worship, we don't gather here so that we can worry and study our enemies. We gather here so we can worship and study and sing to our King and our God and the one that we love. What do we have to worry about our enemy? Well, he comes to his end. No one can help him. That's it. If you never want to study the Antichrist, it's the only thing you need to remember. He dies. <laughs> he's going to come around, do a lot of stuff. How is all this? Well, I don't know what he's going to do. I do know that he dies. And I know that Jesus wins. That's what you need to know. It, you know, we can fight, we can debate, we can figure out other details or, you know, try to wrestle in and figure out these, you know, 10 verses at the end of it. But the most important thing you have to remember is that he dies and God is in control the entire time. And God will be in control. Everything we, we learn about it is so that one day when he appears, whether we're here or not, we can debate that one too, is we don't have anything to fear. We don't have to worry about the future of the kingdom of God. We don't have to worry and fret about the days that will come when all who follow Jesus will be martyred in greater numbers than they already are today at different parts of the world. Why don't we have to worry? Because God's in control. The Antichrist is going to arise when God allows it. He's going to do only what God has allowed and already told him he is allowed to do. And he will only convert those to worship him whom God allows. And then one day when the Antichrist has played his part and God is done with him, he will go to his end and no one can help him and no one can stop God. And that will be it. But the Antichrist from the beginning to end is under the control of God. He opposes God. He rages against God. He magnifies and he talks as if he is his own God, but he's not. Our God is the one who is in control. So what's our, what's our application? What do we do with all of this? You know, God's told us the past. He tells us the future. So what? the application is we have to remember in your last blank or your third point is our God is in control in the present. Our God is in control right now at this moment. He was in control 
in the past, he's in control right now, and he's going to be in control in the future. There's not a single moment that God is not on the throne, and he is not reigning, and he doesn't know what is going to happen. And this reminder has to be written deep on our own hearts, because the world may go crazy. It's gone crazy before, and it's going to go crazy again in the future, and depending on where you live in the world, there are many places in the earth other than ours that feel like their world is ending, like those believers in the Ukraine or Russia now. But so what we need to recognize is that our God is in control, no matter what happens around us. And these wars, we need to, to realize to us that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you got, if I never read this chapter, okay, Pastor, I kind of get it now, thanks, but, you know, you know, I don't really know what to do with that. To God's people, this would have been deeply meaningful and helpful. Because these wars for the king, the king of the north and the south is raging all around them for hundreds of years. Put yourself in their shoes. This would be like for us. If our nation was weak and, and not under its own control anymore, and Canada and Mexico were superpowers and were always fighting for hundreds of years over who got to control us, that would suddenly bring you a lot of anxiety. Suddenly you would start to follow those wars and those leaders and what they're doing and, and who's winning and what next and what does that mean for me and where is this going to go? That's the questions Israel was asking themselves. And what they could do is they could turn to Daniel 11 as all of those six wars were raging and know, oh, wait, God told us that was going to happen. It's in verse 8. And wow, I'm reading the rest, and there's some more bad stuff that's going to come down. But you know what? God is in control. And so they could rest in the moment, in their present, that wasn't very peaceful often, and trust in their God. And so what this tells us today is we can still trust that he is in control. There's lots of anxiety in the world, right? Especially um, just thinking of Russia and Ukraine, it's hard to get away from it. As you see the war crimes and the atrocities that is being committed there. And we can read, you know, their nuclear threats and lies and start to wonder and worry, you know, is this going to lead to more war? Man, I wish someone would stop this. God, please bring peace. But maybe I don't want, you know, what do we even do? What is going to happen? I have no idea what's going to happen. But what I do know is our God is in control. Our God was in control. He is in control and he will be in control. It will go no further than he allows it, though he might, he's already let it go further than I would have wished. But he's God, not me, and not you. So we don't understand his decisions, but we can rest in is the fact that he is in control. But the problem is we forget that, don't we? We are just like the disciples and just like the Israelites. We continually forget our God that we worship. We sing and we praise and we're trying to talk and think and meditate about the fact, yes, our God is in control. He's in control. He's in control. But what's going to happen is we'll walk out these doors and the rest of the life comes and within an hour we might forget. Our news will come from the doctor or an email or something comes across your screen and you suddenly forget. Oh, yeah. I, now I don't know if God really is in control. Usually this can, can happen to the person who this happens to. You can picture somebody who's glued to the news, or they're more discipled by their favorite talk show host than by the Bible, and then that ends up leading to anxiety and anger, and they're always sharing and telling you the most horrible news stories that you've ever heard of, and how everything is going wrong everywhere. They're constantly afraid, seem to have nothing but doom and gloom. Somebody who's forgotten God, and forgotten that he's in control. And the news often, you know, it can make us angry, but the problem might not be with the news, the problem might just be with you. In your own heart. That's true. All these news channels traffic in anger, including the one you watch, whichever it is. And they have some responsibility. We don't think we can just blame them for our sin. We have to examine our own hearts and be honest. 
Just think we can blame the world either and say, well, Lord, I wouldn't be so afraid and anxious and angry. I wouldn't forget you if you would just, you know, do better at keeping all these other people under control. And I don't think the solution for us is that we have to bury our head in the sand and not watch news anymore. If that's not the problem, the problem's our hearts. We do need to repent and turn, put our eyes on Jesus. Some of you might need to repent and turn it off because it's a problem, but that's between you and Jesus. But all of us, what we need to do, I think, is we need to look at the lens of everything happening in our world through Christ. And as we look at it, we should look at it and behind it see that God is still on the throne. He's in control. Whatever it is that I'm reading about, whatever it is that I'm seeing, whatever it is that I'm worrying about. Maybe after reading every single story, you need to stop and remind yourself and simply repeat, God is in control right now. God is in control right now. God was in control when this happened. God is in control now, and he's going to be in control about whatever is going to happen next with wherever this story goes. There's nothing terrible in this life. There's nothing that could transpire between kings and nations outside of the control of God. And we don't measure his power or his control by a popularity poll. And we don't take a vote to decide if God's going to be in control today or not. We don't measure it by the size of our churches. We don't measure it by any standard of human greatness or success. We often measure it, or we should, by the cross. Remember the cross. Okay, on the cross, our king, Jesus, God wrapped up in flesh. What did he do? He died. His enemies killed him. And his disciples ran away because they said, wow, we've lost. It's a failure. And the enemy rejoiced and thought that they won. They laughed and they mocked him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and draped him in purple and laughed and put a sign over him that said, King of the Jews, and said, that's your king? You think he's in control? What a mockery. But that defeat, that death was victory. He conquered sin and death and all that is wrong in our world, not with armies like his disciples thought, but through suffering and a bloody death on the cross. But that entire time, he was under control. He conquers through suffering, not with the armies of angels. He conquered through dying a humiliating death on a raggedy piece of wood. But every single drop of blood that left his body was under his control. It had to ask permission. He could have stopped it at any moment, and yet he was silent. We have to remember that the kingdom of God, and God will be victorious because of the blood of Jesus. Our God is always in control, even when it looks like he's not. Even when we don't know, and even when we can't understand the gospel, part of what it reminds us, our Lord dying for our sins, it means that we can rest. It means that our salvation and our victory, it often comes through death. It doesn't come through, we, we are not saved and now we have to work really hard because if we don't pray enough, if we don't do enough, if I don't save enough people and evangelize enough, the kingdom will fall away and the world will fall apart. Now Jesus already purchased all of our victory. All we have to do is repent, put our faith in him and trust him and be obedient or whatever small thing he's given us. So this morning, we just talked about, tried to remind us that our God is in control. He was in control of the past. 
He will be in control in the future, and he is in control right now at this moment. So we can take heart. We don't have to worry. You don't have to have anxiety or be scared over everything that you might read tomorrow or this week or at any time in the future. Because Jesus is on the throne. Death couldn't defeat our king. The grave could not hold him back. There is nothing the news could report tomorrow that will do so either. God is in control. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would impress deep on our hearts the reality of your sovereignty, the reality that you are God. The reality is that no one can defeat you. Only that everyone who opposes you only does so because you allow it in your grace and in your mercy. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. Lord, that as the rest of Daniel 11 gets fulfilled, or we're waiting for it to be fulfilled, maybe it will be fulfilled in our lifetime. Lord, we ask that we would trust you. We would trust and we would remember that you are always in control. Even and especially when it doesn't feel like it. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our God one last time through song. Man, what a day that will be. I hope you can't wait. Here's a benediction from the end of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.